we want to say hi. We always start with hi. Hi, Charlotte. Hey. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. And today's episode is very special because we are doing the episode and we are actually med students now. (laughs) Yes, we are actually med students. Yeah, and everything just got super real. So today we are going to be talking about Flibanserin, or what some people call female Viagra. Based on this name, what do you think Flibanserin does? So do you know anything about this drug? Have you heard of it before? What are you thinking? I have literally never heard of female Viagra until you proposed the episode topic. So (laughs) I don't know anything about it. Okay, so what is... What does Viagra do? Viagra helps like guys get it up when they're older or having like dysfunction issues. So I'm assuming (laughs) that female Viagra helps women with the same thing. Obviously not getting it up because they don't have those parts. Just like being wet or something. I don't know. I also really love the name. I am like dying at this drug's name right now. Viancerin. Doesn't even sound like a real word. Well, okay, so you're right. Viagra does help guys get it up. It treats erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Flibanserin is used to treat the quote unquote like female equivalent of erectile dysfunction, which is female sexual dysfunction or FSD. And to better understand how flibanserin came to be and why we basically never really hear about it. We're going to get into the history of some sexual dysfunctions to learn about how we came to treat them and then what the outcome of that history is. Amazing. Ready to get started? I am super ready. Exciting. (laughs) Okay. Just to let you know, today we're going to be talking about sex organs. So if hearing the word penis, vagina, clitoris, etc. make you uncomfortable, then this episode might not be for you. True. All right. So there's actually a lot of history that I wanted to cover today because to understand flibanserin's role or lack thereof in our society now, we have to look at flibanserin's older brother, Viagra. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this. I really just feel like flibanserin is the shy, nerdy, like, low-key self-conscious younger sister (laughs) to Viagra's like macho super fratty like older brother vibes imagine if you can imagine that dynamic it gives you a good picture of the relationship between Viagra and Flavanserin yes I am imagining it now to help me cover this history I've decided to title my sections and work through it in part okay so here we go part one Sex Ed Dysfunction Edition. Today in Sex Ed with Miss Alicia, we are learning about. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Even Apple Watch does not know how to respond to Sex Ed. <laughs> I really hope that recorded clearly. <laughs> Me too. Your face is so funny. <laughs> you look like you saw a ghost. Oh, 
today at Sex Ed with Miss Alicia, we are learning about getting turned on. Oh, I like that. AKA sexual arousal. So for individuals that have penises that respond to sexual stimulation by forming an erection, what happens is that sexy time starts and the brain is like, oh yes, I like this. <laughs> and basically it signals to the muscles in the penis to relax. And that's what allows blood to fill the blood vessels in the penis. And that's what makes it hard. Mm. So for those of you that don't know, erectile dysfunction, according to the NIH, is defined as the persistent inability to achieve or maintain an erection sufficient for satisfactory sexual performance. Common causes, kind of like you were saying, Shar, like it happens to a lot of older men, it's because common causes are associated with age mm -hmm. because as you age, your risk for cardiovascular disease increases. And since erections have literally everything to do with blood flow, mm -hmm. this can cause erectile dysfunction. Huh. Also, hormonal imbalances, like, for example, decreased testosterone can lead to ED. It's also a side effect of some meds, like antidepressants, antihypertensives, which treat high blood pressure, and so on. So, of course, it's also, we know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, that it's a side effect of some drugs like alcohol. And we oh, know this yes. because whiskey dick is a thing. Yep. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. But overall, we have a decent amount of knowledge about ED. So like all of those things are just a brief overview, but we know a lot about it. We've studied a lot. Mm -hmm. Let's get into what we're really here for. Let's get into the lady part. Yeah. So what is the female equivalent of a boner? Wouldn't it be being wet? I don't know what it's actually okay. called. <laughs> So that's like being wet is like the outcome of this. But if we think about oh. like what an erection is, think about like what happens to your clitoris. I was going to say so, like the clitoris enlarges. Yeah, exactly. So female sexual arousal is actually pretty similar to male sexual arousal. It, the only difference is that most of it you can't really see. But essentially we're back in that, like we're back in sexy time. <laughs> Things are getting heated. And your brain is like, oh, yes, I like this. And it signals to your clitoris and vulva to swell up with blood. And so fun fact, the clitoris and the penis actually came from the same group of cells in the womb before hormones determined whether the, your like sex at birth was male or female or like intersex, that kind of thing. So it's all oh. like the same tissues, but the hormones determine your sex right that you're like how they're formed basically formed. yeah exactly so since they were the same it makes sense that they both swell up with blood and also in women there's a release of lubrication mm -hmm. which is what you were talking about like getting wet because your vagina is assuming that like something is going to enter it okay and it's like okay gotta prep for that <laughs> like gotta make sure that this works out okay right so therefore, the female quote-unquote version of erectile dysfunction is called female sexual interest slash arousal disorder, but most people know it as female sexual disorder or FSD, like I said. And FSD is defined as persistent slash recurring decrease in sexual desire or arousal, the difficulty slash inability to achieve an orgasm, and or the feeling of pain during sexual intercourse. Many of the causes of FSD are similar to ED because they can be physical. They might be comorbid, like they might be a result of other 
diseases like diabetes, heart disease, or they might be a side effect of medications like antidepressants. WebMD said it can also be caused by menopause and specifically mentioned psychological causes like stress, anxiety, marital problems, past trauma, and feelings of guilt. Oh, wow. So thinking about my description of ED versus my description of FSD, does anything strike you as interesting? Um, the part you just mentioned just now about mental mm-hmm. health, your own emotions can affect your sexual dysfunction in women, but not in men. Yeah. So that's exactly what I thought was interesting too, mm-hmm. because WebMD is like where people turn for most of their, yeah, you know, where you find out that you're dying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And so seeing that, that definitely probably has an effect on women. Yeah. And I know of course that Some causes of ED in men can be attributed to psychological issues. I just think it was interesting on WebMD's part to specifically mention psychological causes like in women, but not men. Okay, but for diagnosis of ED and FSD, these are done by guidelines in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, aka the DSM-5. That is crazy! (laughs) I know. And what I'm interested in is, so I do know that urologists at least diagnose ED and probably FSD as well. So one thing I was wondering is like how these physicians might diagnose ED and FSD differently Mm -hmm. from maybe a psychological specialist who relies more heavily on the DSM. Yeah. Okay. So to tie up this section, that was sex ed with Miss Alicia. Uh-huh. And now we're moving on to talk more about treating erectile dysfunction and what that looked like over time. Amazing. So we're going to start that in part two titled, Dude, Why Can't I Get It Up? <laughs> <laughs> so uh-huh. if the world is at a point where it literally loses all certainty, which honestly, we're at that point because I really feel like we've lost all certainty in the world. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) But there is one thing that we can be certain of. Oh man. What do you think that would be, Shar? That people want to have sex. (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) Yes. Very, very close. But it's actually, I personally think that it's that men will jack off. (laughs) Like men will literally not stop ejaculating even in times of immense crisis. Like COVID hit and then Pornhub was like free premium membership. Oh my God, that's so funny. So this is something, it's a universal truth. It's something we know to be true and can wholeheartedly count on, which is why ED has been something people have been writing about and working to treat since ancient Egyptian and even biblical times. Look at you in the yeah, ancient this is history. So fun. I know. I was like, this really feels like a role reversal, and I'm so here for it. <laughs> so, in Mesopotamian texts from 7th century BCE, if you were a man who thought a sorcerer was trying to steal your virility, which oh. is like your manhood, mm-hmm. you would chant at them. Oh. Get excited, get excited, get an erection, get excited like a stag, get an erection like a wild bull. Let a lion get an erection along with you. <laughs> it literally sounds like a high school cheer team or something. I'm just imagining like you see a dude, he just like 
someone in the street just looks at you and you're like, that's a sorcerer. (laughs) And then you chant at them, get excited, get excited. All right. In the 8th century, men of ancient Rome and Greece wore talismans of rooster and goat genitalia Mm. because they believed that these talismans would act as aphrodisiacs and promote sexual function. Mm -hmm. And then Romans would eat the genitalia of animals with high sex drives like rabbits. I didn't realize that rabbits had high sex drive. You didn't realize that? (laughs) No, I didn't. We think lived in Ann Arbor for rabbit. four years and there were rabbits everywhere. Oh, actually, that's true. There are rabbits everywhere. But it gets it gets like more gross. They would also drink the semen of oh. hawks and eagles. I Wait. know. Imagine that in your like wine. How do they even get it? <laughs> that is a good logistical question that I did not think about. In the 13th century, a friar named Albertus Magnus suggested remedies to ED, such as ingesting roasted wolf penis. Oh. And by the 18th century, it was thought that impotence, which is like an old-timey way of Mm -hmm. talking about ED, was a consequence of masturbation and loss of semen. Yes. So this doctor, Dr. Samuel Solomon, made something he called his balm of Gilead, Mm. which was to prevent the desire to masturbate and therefore would maintain your semen. Like it would store your semen because you weren't masturbating anymore. What? And I looked into this because I was like, what is in this? Yeah, I was like, what is this? And so I found out (laughs) in this balm was cardamom, brandy, and this chemical called cantharides, which I looked up and they are derived from blister beetles which cause painful blisters and inflammation oh my god I know (laughs) so no wonder it like kept these men from jacking (gasps) off their penises were literally on fire (laughs) (laughs) all right and then after all of this craziness in 1983 this is just a fun aside Mm -hmm. at a urology conference a doctor literally injected a chemical into his penis that made him erect immediately. And to prove it to any, everyone, he took off his pants and just Wait. showed them all. <laughs> just like at this a professional 19- conference? Yes. I know. And in, in 1983, it was not that long ago. Imagine being in the crowd at that conference. <laughs> yeah. That would be so bad. Anyway, there have been many more treatments throughout history, especially in more modern history, but we just don't really have time to touch on those now yeah. um, because I want to focus on sildenafil citrate created by British Pfizer scientists Peter Dunn and Albert Wood in 1989, okay. which they believed that this drug would be useful in treating high blood pressure and angina, which is chest pain. Mm-hmm associated with coronary artery disease. So they were trying to treat coronary artery disease. Mm -hmm. And in 1991, Dr. Nicholas Tourette patented his heart medication as Viagra. But in the early 1990s, as Pfizer was like doing their early clinical trials, they found that it wasn't actually treating patients' heart diseases. Mm Do you know what it was causing, though? It was causing erections, probably. (laughs) Yes, it was causing erections. (laughs) Apparently, these men were having amazing erections. And this makes sense because of what we learned in part one, sex ed, where erections have everything to do with blood flow. 
so they started doing studies for this medication and they did it for ED. And apparently at the end of every week of the trials, the researchers went to go collect the leftover drugs and the volunteers did not want to give them back. Really? They were like, no, we need these. You have given us gold. That's literally what happened. So in 1998, Viagra became the first FDA approved oral treatment for erectile dysfunction. Okay. And in the first, this is important, in the first few weeks that Viagra came out, experts estimate that U.S. pharmacists dispensed more than 40,000 Viagra prescriptions in the first few weeks of it coming out. Everyone was flocking to it. Yeah, it was like, we need that now. Wow. This little blue pill that works like miracles. Mm -hmm. And this is just, it's not really relevant, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. But there, here are some jokes that people were making about Viagra. Oh, I'm excited. When it was getting super popular, you know. So it's, did you hear about the first death from an overdose of Viagra? A man took 12 pills and his wife died. Oh my God. I know. Isn't that so terrible? That's so savage. I literally hate people. And then this is the second one that I thought was kind of funny. Viagra is now compared to Disneyland, a one hour wait for a two minute ride. Wow. So it seems like treating ED has been this like major success with Viagra. Uh And it's just this like little magical blue pill. It, it, that's what it seems like. So what about for us? Like, what about ladies who are struggling with female arousal, female sexual dysfunction? Mm-hmm. Don't we deserve to experience arousal and orgasms? Of course. Yes, we absolutely do. Which leads me to part three, which is titled, So Where is My Magic Little Blue Pill? Mm. Yes. So when we're talking about female sexuality, we're actually looking at the shift that occurred in the first millennium BC, and it happened Mm -hmm. like across the world. So I'm looking like really big picture because I think we inherently tend to have like a Western centric perspective on our podcast. And it's really difficult to kind of break out of that, which isn't an excuse, but this is me trying. So there was a shift and it was happening across the world and it happened in three regions kind of separately. So it happened first in China and then India and Persia and then in the Eastern Mediterranean, including countries like Greece and Israel. So it happened in these shifts. And basically what happened was we moved away from this mythic, cosmic and collective conscious that we had about sexuality with women in the center. Mm And we moved towards this male-dominated, rational, analytical, like individual consciousness. Right. Yeah. And this impacted the way that we thought about sex as well. And it happened in both Eastern and Western cultures. Okay. And I don't know what caused it. It just, this is just what the literature said. Mm -hmm. So for example, today in India, modern Hindu cultures generally disapprove of the erotic aspects of sex in married life. And they cast them aside as medieval or outdated thoughts. But in early texts, there were actually many texts that valued sexuality and pleasure. Right. Um, Maybe you've heard of the Kama Sutra? Don't think so. It's a really famous Indian text. And it was written between the first and sixth century BC. 
And it's all about religious duty, worldly welfare, and sensuality. And that's just one example of like early history that really valued women's sexuality, sensuality, and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then that shifted. And now in modern culture, we don't seem to have that anymore. That's kind of talking about female sexuality in general. But when we're talking about female sexual issues, we're not starting in ancient history like we did with ED. We're going to start around the 16th century. Honestly, this itself shows that double standard between men and women. There were like literally spells to ward off erectile dysfunction Mm -hmm. in the seventh century. And then there was no references to female sexual issues until the 16th century. Right. Like so late in the game. Exactly. Anyway, as early as the 16th century, it wasn't the lack of sexual desire that was seen as a female sexual disorder. It was nymphomania that was seen as more worth writing about. So nymphomania is basically having uncontrollable or excessive sexual desire, but only in women. Oh, yes. we're Which the hypersexual ones. <laughs> yes, we are the hypersexual ones. And etymologically, this makes sense because I looked it up and nymph is a Greek root for bride, young lady, or maiden. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, mania is like madness. So nymphomania is characterized by the uncontrollable sexual desire in a woman. But what's important to keep in mind about FSD and female sexuality in general is that it's closely tied to psychology rather than biology. Yes, always. And talking about female sexual dysfunction in terms of lack of sex drive actually came up more so in the 19th century when someone we know had some thoughts about it. Do you know who it was? Oh, was it Karen Horney? No! <laughs> Wait. Dude, was it it's Freud? Horny, but it's not. Yeah, oh, it I Freud. thought it was about like a, like a woman had thoughts. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he's back. He oh, literally Freud. dominated discussions of female sexuality. So all that stuff from, yeah, so all that stuff from episode three is what sure. people literally believed about sexuality. Oh, God. Not the, the little, little men and little overalls but again. He's the guy who basically created this concept of frigidity to describe failure of vaginal orgasms. Thank you, Freud. What? I know. He sucked. So he suck. what did they think should be done about remedying frigidity. Like Freud creates this idea of like frigidity, which is failure of reaching orgasm. So what did they think should be done? Well, they thought, well, what do you think they thought? Because I think you know. Um, was it for the woman to have sex with her husband more? Because <laughs> yes! that seemed to always be the solution. That is the solution. <laughs> and there's a quote. It says, quote, Sexual fulfillment was vital for a happy marriage and by extension also for a healthy society. Oh my God. Wait, I want to <laughs> mention something too about that because that was the cure for everything, right? To like sleep with your husband. And mm-hmm. even when women have regular diseases and they'd be like, no, 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 you're just having sexual dysfunction. Go home, sleep with your husband. That'll fix you up down there and then you'll be cured and you'll be healthy again. So like everything was attributed to the sexual dysfunction. They would oh, blame- illness on oh you're just having sexual dysfunction that's why that's why your lungs hurt like it doesn't make any sense Mm. at all even if they weren't having sexual dysfunction that was what a lot of illnesses were attributed to and then you had to go home and sleep Mm. with your husband and then you were all cured it was like the magical cure 
It is. That is my little magic blue pill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I solved part three. So helpful. But (laughs) it was thought that frigidity in women was because they hadn't been taught to love and that their Mm -hmm. husbands were responsible for like managing their pleasure. And it was all in the confines of like heterosexuality, marriage and motherhood, of course. Mm -hmm. So it was very appropriate. And when the first edition of the DSM was released in 1952, impotence and frigidity were included under psychophysiological autonomic and visceral disorders. Through the decades, it changes to the DSM made the categorizations of the disorders more specific. And then before the DSM-3 came out, Williams Master and Virginia Johnson released the four-stage human sexual response cycle. Okay which basically used scientific and honestly almost like symptomatic terms to explain the buildup to orgasm and then what follows. They literally watched a bunch of like videos of people getting turned on so they could like look at what was going on to their genitals. Yeah. And so then they looked at a bunch of people and they were like, oh, these are all the things that happen in everyone. Mm. When they did this, They basically made it so that if certain bodily responses were occurring or not recurring, so for example, like lubrication, labial swelling, blah, 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 this meant that something was wrong Mm -hmm. with that person's sexual response. And so even though this kind of became a way to help differentiate between different sexual disorders, it also made sexual response this one size fits all. Right. Yeah. So this new way of thinking about sexual stages made it so that many sexual dysfunctions in the DSM started to be categorized by physical responses. And by the time we get to the current DSM edition, which is the DSM-5, female sexual dysfunction is clearly labeled and clearly present. And I'm telling you all of this because it's important to highlight how complicated sexual dysfunction is, particularly for women. And we know this because thinking about FSD as this purely biological disorder would be wrong Mm -hmm. since it obviously has a ton of interpersonal factors that play into it. But also seeing it as only psychosocial would also be wrong Mm -hmm. because there are studies that have shown that FSD is associated with physiological issues like cardiac problems, like all those things we talked about in sex ed. Yeah. The question is like, how do we treat FSD? And historically FSD has been treated with psychotherapy, mm. which we've talked about being not fully effective. Right. But what do you think, Char? Like if we were going to start from ground zero and we wanted to make a drug, what would we... Like we could try to take Viagra? Yes. <laughs> we could try Viagra. We thought... <laughs> it was like a, hey, why don't we try Viagra? It worked amazing in men. And I looked into some studies And they first started in female like animal models and they saw that it was working pretty well in animals. Sexual desire in animals can be objectively identified because they have the same behaviors, like they have appetitive behaviors. So it shows their sex drive like actually occurring. But in humans, of course, it's more nuanced than that. And with the studies that I looked at, they basically found that in cases where FSD was a result of like a different issue, for example, type one diabetes, multiple sclerosis, et cetera. Viagra might be beneficial for treatment. 
but overall, most studies just said that the study wasn't reliable. <laughs> what? Like so many studies I looked at were like, this is the study, but here's what's wrong with the study. Like the oh. sample size is too small or some of the trials were of poor quality. So in general, Viagra just isn't a great option for FSD. Okay. Which brings us to Lebanserin. Lebanserin. For my medical slash biology nerds out there like you. Yes, that is me. <laughs> Lebanserin is a serotonin agonist and antagonist. And so all this means is that Lebanserin plays around with your serotonin levels in the brain. And serotonin is known as one of the brain chemicals that makes you happy. Yes, it like does. Like serotonin. This actually makes sense because flibanserin was originally supposed to be an antidepressant. Oh. And so when you're depressed, you take something that increases your serotonin levels, makes you happy. But serotonin also plays a role in motivation and sex drive. So it became used for FSD. Do you remember, Char, how Viagra works? Viagra helps with blood flow. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Viagra affects penile smooth muscle and allows blood to flow there right. immediately. Wait, how does um how do how do you say this drug? Flambrosin or whatever. Levanserin? We all know I'm terrible at reading. <laughs> how is it an agonist and an antagonist? That's a good question. And I also wondered. I just wonder if it works on like two different receptors. So it has like different functions on two receptors. It probably works on receptors in different locations. And I just didn't look at what those were. Amazing. Okay. Okay. So flibanserin works so differently from Viagra. And we can see this because it's a serotonin agonist antagonist and Viagra like works on something totally yeah, different. Yeah. It's like the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Like so, so different. So. Flibanserin was approved by the FDA to treat FSD in 2016, but according to the New York Times, doctors prescribed it fewer than 4,000 times between February and April of 2016. Oh. So for perspective, yeah. around 40% of women are affected by FSD in the United States. And remember, do you remember like how much... Viagra was prescribed. It was like in the hundreds of thousands or something like that. Yeah, it was it was 40,000. Yeah. Still a lot yeah. in multiple weeks. Still a lot compared to 4,000 in multiple months. Yeah, that's nothing. So, overall, this is a lot to unpack because honestly, once I got to this point, I didn't really know where to go from here. I know the episode is supposed to be about flibanserin, but I think after really doing this research, I realized that this topic is just so much bigger than one pill. I think there's a lot of uncertainties and answers we just don't have about FSD. Mm -hmm. And it's not the usual end we have to our history sections because it feels so not final. But I think that's what makes it a good place to stop and talk about it more. What do you think? Yeah, I think we should talk about it. Let's go. Okay, cool. All right, so let's just always start with what we usually do, which is, what are you thinking, Shar? That was a lot to unpack, but a short history and still like very heavy. What are you thinking? 
Um, the one thing I'm thinking about just the different ways the drugs act in order to correct sexual dysfunction. So like that Viagra works on the heart, like an organ system. Mm-hmm. And flabanserin acts like on the brain and is helping increase this emotion. And it's interesting because we always talk about how women's diseases are attributed to their emotions and to mental health mm-hmm. and things. And that's not always correct. But in this case, it literally is treating the female disease through treating the brain so it's like kind of backwards of what we always talk about yeah Yeah. I know I was thinking similarly along those lines the question of like to medicate or not to medicate Mm -hmm. because it's tough since you don't want to over or under medicalize the situation yeah I think where my head really went was that the research on FSD was so shoddy Mm -hmm. that even the question of to medicate or not to medicate I don't even think we can validly answer that question because the research sucks yeah most of the studies weren't even reliable and that's what's crazy is comparing that to ED which has been widely studied and talked about for ages right we know so much about it and it I mean I'm not going to deny that we came about Viagra in this random kind of miraculous way but I just think we aren't giving the time to female sexual dysfunctions no I agree and then I'm also wondering with the over medicalizing it or not is that when when you're treating psychological disorders say like depression like some people don't do well on antidepressants they don't do well having that increased serotonin in the brain like doesn't fix their depression but maybe therapy does or maybe it's like a combination of therapy and like drugs so I wonder if that's the same for sexual dysfunction as is since it's a drug working through a psychological effect. Does therapy help it the same way? Or is it like a combination of the two? Or yeah, maybe there's not enough research at all. And this is just the completely wrong way to treat it. Like, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of questions. Well, something else that I was thinking about is what is normal? Mm-hmm. And what effects do defining symptoms of sexual disorders, defining those symptoms as normal or abnormal, what does that even mean? Because we use these terms in medicine all the time, like, oh, her cholesterol levels are normal, or her A1C is abnormal. Mm-hmm. Because what even is normal? And right, how who's like the does... one stereotypical human, healthy human, right. like, how do you even know that's right. the right human. (laughs) And how does rethinking our understanding of quote unquote normal have a particularly different impact when we're talking about sexual dysfunction? Oh yeah. So I was thinking about this question when you were talking about how it's in DSM-5, just the actual Mm -hmm. characteristics and like the things that you can check off the boxes. And if you don't check off a box and you have sexual dysfunction, like I just don't know any person who functions sexually in the same way right if you would give a list of five or whatever there were things that lead you up to an orgasm you give 50 people like everyone would come back with different responses say they're normal healthy people statistic normal and then you give them this and they all come back with sexual dysfunction by the textbook term but they're all like no it's i've always functioned sexually and it's completely fine for me and i have no problem with right. it like this is my version of normal why this is, normal is your standard supposed to be my standard now mm-hmm. yeah i know <laughs> i when i think about normal okay. when i started really going down the rabbit hole of like what is normal <laughs> i was taken back again to 
undergrad Uh and my sex disorders class. And I had the privilege, it was literally an honor to meet with this professor. Her name is Gail Rubin. And she's a professor of like women's studies and LGBTQ studies at Michigan. Mm -hmm. And she is super important and this renowned sex researcher. And she created this paradigm or like a way of thinking about sex and how society views sex. And it's called the charmed circle. What it is, is if you imagine like two concentric circles, there's like a small circle inside of a big circle. Mm -hmm. And in the small circle is the good sex, like quote unquote, good sex lives and the outer limits are for bad sex. So the charmed circle is the inner circle. And that's where normal heterosexual, married, reproductive, vanilla sex resides. And everything that's abnormal is in the outer limits. So this includes queer sex, unmarried heterosexual sex, unmarried sex in general, masturbation, porn, like literally everything Everything else on the planet. (laughs) And I remember when I first learned about this, it was one of the first things I learned about sex in general. And I had never thought about it in this way mm-hmm. of what was normal and good, what was bad. And she wasn't saying it in terms of like, this is normal and good. And this is bad. It was more like, this is a way to think about it. Or this is a way that society thinks about it. Right. I mean, now I've just thought about it so much. And I realized that sexuality and like sensuality is so fluid and complex. and And thinking about it in a binary is a binary of normal and abnormal is so problematic. And I mean, thinking about binaries in general is super bad. Mm -hmm. But I think when we think about sexuality in general, like our like female empowering like sexuality, it's oppressively heteronormative and male centered. Oh, yeah. And this (laughs) and this seriously affects the way that we think and talk about sexual dysfunction because we neglect how it impacts queer love and trans love and anything outside of this normal charm circle. And so our idea of normal is totally socially constructed, Uh of course. And that's what makes it tough when we think about socially constructed norms and biological norms. Right. Because they are different and the way that we look at them is different. But that's what makes FSD so complicated because it's like both. I went on like a whole spiral thinking about what is normal. All right. Well, Moving on a little bit, um, this was something I thought was interesting. So historians, cultural scholars, and scientists who worked on developing Viagra say that in the 20 years since its release, it has changed the way America talks about sex, making it more open and less puritanical. How do you feel about this? So Alicia, we're like, we send each other our questions before we record the episodes. We know what to think about. And I laughed out loud when I read this question. (laughs) What? What planet are you on? Are we on Earth? Did I? Am I in an alternative universe? And I'm not experiencing what this person experienced? Because I think that statement is very wrong. To say that the way that America talks about making it more open less puritanical I was just like I don't think that's the case I I mean I wasn't alive 20 years ago so I don't well Viagra came out more like 40 years ago now so obviously we don't know what it was like then so it could have been totally different right but that was also during the sexual revolution of women in all of second wave feminism so 
like right, exactly <laughs> I feel like things have been pretty plateaued since then about I feel like this really highlights the serious double standards that discriminately affect people based on gender because yeah. like sexual double standards particularly are really tough women and gender and gender-based discrimination is so pervasive in all forms of gender but I feel like when we're talking about sexual dysfunction it's really really prominent because talking about sex isn't normalized Mm -hmm. at all and so I don't know when I was living in Europe I that's why I really got to experience that difference because sex wasn't this topic that people shied away from or didn't want to talk about and here like sure maybe sex is something that men are more open to talking about there's their locker room talk, all of that stuff. But women, I don't really know. I mean, maybe women among other women, but that's coming from my privileged background of being able to talk about sex and sexuality with my friends. But I can't, obviously that's not the same for all women. But the fact that penis size is something that comes up and like the number of times a guy can ejaculate is something that's more acceptable, common to talk about than women having orgasms really just shows how quote-unquote open we are to talk about sex and who this privilege applies to. Right. I was also thinking too about it's centered more about men and like sex for men. And I'm thinking about Pornhub especially which made for men and but everyone knows about Pornhub but then no one knows about Dipsia app which is oh I love Dipsy porn for women and why isn't this more popular why is men's pleasure the one that's advertised and everyone knows about and talks about and then women's pleasure is never considered yeah everything about sex and culture and what people talk about is always centered around how men feel about sex I think oh man okay but Tying it all together instead of how does this apply to women in medicine and women in general? I think something that we can all do a little bit more in our lives is think about sexual health and acknowledge sexual health is something that we value. Uh And so I wanted to do a little role play moment. Go to this place for me. Think about a time in your life or like a moment where you felt really self-conscious or nervous about your own sexuality. And you don't have to share that moment because those are between you and yourself. But I want you to think about what you would say to someone who was in that situation that you were in at one point. And like, what would you have wanted to hear that could have inched you closer to owning and like feeling good and feeling empowered about your own sexual health? What I would say to someone, and I think I kind of concluded on trying to create a very sex positive space. If someone were, they were like uncomfortable with something, how someone like thought about their own sexuality or they didn't know what to do, or I think just creating like a sex positive space. And then also talking about how your sexuality doesn't have to be the standards that are put out for women or even expectations from other Mm -hmm. women. Like there are so many ideas from men and from the internet or from hookup culture, yeah. like things bad of like what you're supposed to be to be considered a sexual being, the way you have to act, the way you have to dress. And I don't think like any of that's true. Right. I feel like there's a lot of standards of when you're allowed to feel yeah. sexy and when no, absolutely. You're to accept your sexuality and like when you're allowed to express it. And none of those standards are actually true. You know, like you need to be able yeah. to own what makes you comfortable and then have a space where you can like talk about it with your friends. Cause I feel like 
I agree. I think sex positive spaces are so important and they are few and far between. And it's really difficult to have conversations like that with people, especially when you're in a new space and you're still getting to know them. But I think if that's something that is important to you, which doesn't necessarily have to be, but if you are someone who values your sexual health and you want to be able to feel good about it, then you have that right. But what I was thinking, what I would consider or what I would want to say, well, I don't know exactly what I would say, say to them. I think I would also try to create a sex positive space, but I do want to acknowledge that it's really difficult based off of all of these like socio-cultural barriers Mm -hmm. that exist. And I kind of mentioned this before, but I was really thinking about it more is that talking about sexuality is such a privilege and we have this immense privilege to be able to have these conversations because, you know, we're in that space. But I looked this up because I was interested in There's basically like a bunch of studies that have been done on multi-ethnic women, especially across different ages. And it showed that women either value or like rate that they value or don't value pleasure by X amount. And I don't know, it just in specifically Asian cultures, they infrequently experience sexual desire. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of cultural things that we have to consider as well that we aren't necessarily, but I was just imagining like, what if I worked at a planned parenthood and someone walked in and they were a young girl who, I don't know, like was first getting into her sexual spaces. I think it's just important to open up those conversations with your patients and obviously test the water. Don't just be like, yeah, sex is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Jump into it. it Because You don't know their backgrounds either, but I think if you can gauge it and you can communicate effectively with your patient or whoever it is that you're speaking with, I just feel like if they have no one in their life that they can talk to, they can talk to their physician and that trust, that's invaluable. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that I took away from this whole thing. But yeah, the most we can do is try to foster those spaces. And like I said, we're just doing our best. (laughs) We're always doing our best. (laughs) I know. All right. Well, if you want to keep listening to Alicia and I try our best to talk about all these different (laughs) topics, then go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcasting app you like to listen to. Also, we would love it if you would leave a rating and review for us specifically on Apple Podcasts, because that's just the best place to do that. Or if you're not really into leaving ratings and reviews, then please suggest us three, four, five friends, whoever many you want, who you think would be interested in our podcast. Yes. And I just want to give a shout out to the people who have left us reviews. They honestly really warmed our heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely was a tearjerker for me. And if you want to connect with us, you can follow us on social media. um, And you can also check out our website for more information. Our show notes are there and our sources as well. And that's from scrubs.com. Yeah. And then lastly, like every single episode, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. All right. Gonna go do Anki cards. Oh, <laughs> see you guys next Bye. time. Bye. Bye.